friends, welcome to Womankind. I am here in episode 56 with my guest today, Jessie Fisher. She is the executive director of Preservation Buffalo Niagara. She's an urban planner and she's a Buffalo native, sort of. We'll get into that. Hi, Jessie. Hey, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So tell me a little bit about Preservation Buffalo Niagara and what you do. So Preservation Buffalo Niagara is the region's only uh, full-service historic preservation organization. So our mission is to identify, protect, and promote uh, the unique architecture and historic legacy of Western New York while connecting people to the places they love. And we actually just amended our uh, mission statement to add in the part about people and places that they love because that's really the core of what we really do. Oh, awesome. Now, tell me, what does that mean, full service, versus some other things that are going on in the Buffalo area? Yeah, so um, our staff is all fully trained and professional, so um, uh, several of us have degrees in urban planning. We've got a master's degree in historic preservation um, uh, person in the office, so um, we aren't just advocates and we aren't just people who like old buildings, so all of us do. <laughs> um, we're people with pretty specific professional backgrounds, so if you have a question or a concern um, and you're out there in the community, we want to help you and we're sort of trained to help you. Um, so if there's something going on in your neighborhood, if there's a building that's threatened, if there's a story that you feel like isn't being told in the story of Buffalo, um, we can sort of come out and actually help you to do that and uh, we like to be very connected to the community in that way. So there are organizations that um, are really strong advocate organizations and do different things like that and we are also an advocacy organization but we'll come out and we'll do trainings for different um, types of groups for neighborhoods, for black clubs, even for preservation commissions. And so that's really, I think, what what separates us from some of the other groups. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so you operate in the city of Buffalo primarily. We actually serve the seven counties of Western New oh, York. Okay. Um, not necessarily oh, that Buffalo, well okay, once you get it. out of Erie and Niagara counties. <laughs> right. It's, um, you know, there's a big territory and we're a small organization. Um, but uh, our primary focus is Erie and Niagara County and then within that, primarily the city of Buffalo and the city of Niagara Falls. But just yesterday we had a workshop in Williamsville. They have um, a couple historic districts there. And so, you know, we go where we're needed within Western New York. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So primarily, you said historic buildings primarily, so what qualifies a building as historic? I know there's some kind of criteria that has to be met. So there's actually a couple uh, different definitions of historic. So um, it depends on if you're talking about a national register district mm -hmm. or a national register building or a local district. And they can be a little bit different. Um, typically for the national register, you have to be at least 50 years old. And then you have to meet some other criteria in terms of either importance of the architectural style, importance of the architect, importance of the people associated with the building, um, or importance of the sort of story that's being told in that place that maybe isn't being told in other places. So there are, um, it's called the Secretary of Interior Standards, that's what we use, um, and most local, and that's the national level, and then um, New York being a home rule state, um, local communities actually adopt their own um, criteria. So while there's four criteria for the National Register, the City of Buffalo, for instance, has nine criteria oh, wow. that they use. So you only have to meet one of the nine. Mm -hmm. Often we find that most things we're trying to say meet multiple. Um, it's very rare that we would see something that really only met one of the criteria. Um, so, so it is a little different. And then the 
City Buffalo Ordinance is a little bit different from the Village of East Aurora Ordinance mm -hmm. is a little bit, you know, different than um, the City of Niagara Falls Ordinance. So um, it can be a little bit different depending on what locality you're then in. Okay. Interesting. So what, tell us a project that you're working on right now, something maybe you're trying to save or something you're trying to bring awareness to. We'll talk about more than one, but let's hear yeah. your favorite right now. Um, I guess my my favorite right now is probably the Willard Park housing uh, project that we're working on, um, saving on uh, Spring Street um, in downtown, just adjacent to downtown Buffalo. And um, it's one of the first um, purpose-built African-American um, social housing projects in the United States um, and one of the first in New York State. And um, it's a really interesting story of how those buildings were built and why they were built. Um, I've learned a lot about um, public housing and social housing and its origins. Um, it was actually segregated by law. You know, there's a, a lot of really interesting things that when you look at the history of this building that, um, that you find. Um, it, architecturally, it's a really important piece of the Buffalo Canon, and it's not something that we talk about a lot um, because it's really the beginning of the modern movement in Buffalo. So, um, interestingly, the Museum of Modern Art did uh, an exhibit and then wrote a book on uh, a guide to the Northeast in terms of modern architecture, and they picked eight buildings in Buffalo to be in that book. And this building was one of them. And yes, four wow. of them were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Now the other four that weren't, <laughs> one of them is Willard Park Courts. Um, and so it really likes, is really marks kind of the beginning of uh, modernism and the international style in Buffalo. So architecturally that's very important. And it's just, it's really lovely space. It has these really beautiful sculptures and it was really, um, it was really designed with the community and with the future community in mind. So it's a great space and it's a great project and it's, um, has virtually no local recognition, so we're really working to change that. I mean, I've never heard of that until now. And so can you talk a little bit more about the piece where you're trying to bring what you do to the larger community and letting people know? Because I feel like I was born and raised in the Western New York area. I do have an interest in, you know, some of the preservation that's going on in Buffalo, but I just feel like I don't I haven't known until recently. I haven't had things on my radar. So how are you bringing that to people to, you know, help them understand what you do and to get, like, more of a an interest in that? Yeah, well, we're coming on the Womankind podcast. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's a key part of our strategy. Um, but seriously, we really are trying to change the narrative about what preservation is and who it serves and what kind of stories it elevates. Um, so... Part of it is just that, like making sure that um, we're not just telling stories about powerful white men and the buildings that they built or that were built for them. Um, and so we really are trying to expand the narrative of who built the city, you know, how people, different folks affected um, uh, the city, um, as well as the larger community. And so... Um, so we spend a lot of time in the field. If you call me at the office, you might not get a call back for two or three days because we really do try to spend as much time as possible out in neighborhoods and out talking to people. Um, what's important to you? You know, um, when you live in a neighborhood, you see things maybe differently than somebody who's just driving quickly through or someone who's a visitor to that space. So it's really important for us to be meeting with block clubs, meeting with community mm -hmm. leaders, and really getting a sense from them of what are the important stories and what are we missing um, by just only skimming the surface of, of 
you know, famous architects. How mm -hmm. do we get below that? So that's really our goal is to spend as much time talking to people like you and other folks who have, you know, different varied audiences who might be interested in what we do but didn't know it had a name or didn't know that their story might be important um, enough to tell. Mm -hmm. And what a great place to do this in Buffalo. We're so lucky to have the history that we do have here. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, from an architectural standpoint, you have all the great masters here, and mm -hmm. so, you know, that's really interesting. And then, although I always find when I bring people to Buffalo and we take them around, it's not, they, they sort of, they know, people in my world kind of know, you know, they know the Guarantee Building, and they'll mm -hmm. know, um, you know, the Frank Lloyd Wright houses and stuff. But then when you actually bring them into the real neighborhoods where, you know, real people live and, and that every day, I think that always blows their minds actually more than anything else. And, you know, you feel, I always felt growing up here, like I lived in this kind of museum of just beautiful spaces. And it was the fact that I got to go through and around those spaces every single day. And it wasn't just go visit that museum of loveliness. It was my world is actually filled with loveliness. And so I think that was what sort of sparked, one of the things that sparked my interest in urban planning as a, as a kid. That's awesome. Yeah, I so I've lived on the west side now for about a year, and this summer I've been walking. Um, you know, I'm a teacher, I get the summer off, so every day I find something new in the neighborhood, whether it's a new house or a business that I didn't know was tucked away in between a couple houses, and there's just so much to explore and so much to find around here. Yeah, and every neighborhood has those things, and yay for walking. You really do get <laughs> a totally different sense of, you know, of a community if you walk through it than, you know, if you drive to it or if you just go to a specific location and get back in your car and go home. It's really different than when you're actually walking through it. And that's, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in Grand Island, so I spent much of my time driving back and forth on the thruway and not really spending a lot of time in neighborhoods, so I'm thankful to have this opportunity. I mean, I fell in love with Buffalo when I went to Buff State, and I still remember the first time I got lost a little bit on the west side, and I came upon the armory for the first oh, yeah. time and didn't know what it was, and I just remember pulling over and staring <laughs> at it and saying, where did this come from? Why is this here? What is this building? Like, is it a castle? I don't know. Right. And then I went home and asked my parents, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's, that's the armory. You didn't know about that? <laughs> No, it was amazing. Um, well, that's kind of nice for us because it means that um, our work still needs to continue. We still yes. more people to, you know, to bring in and to show all these important buildings too. So I think something that people know about Buffalo or hear about Buffalo that maybe is a bit of a misrepresentation is the mistakes that we've made and the buildings that we've lost. So is that kind of where your work stems from or is that just something you're hoping to prevent in the future? Like the... The building that I've heard about over and over is the, in Larkinville area, the Frank Lloyd Wright building that was building. knocked down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I am lucky enough to be in this position, like really standing on the shoulders of giants. And our organization was actually formed 10 years ago, um, but it grew out of the merger of um, the Preservation Coalition of Erie County and the Landmark Society of the Niagara Frontier. And both of those organizations um, were active for 40 years. And um, really, um, you can credit one or both of those organizations with saving things like the Guarantee Building, which again, under the Griffin administration, was proposed for a parking lot. So um, we did have some awful losses. We did have some great saves, and there have been preservationists really active um, for a number of years. Um, so, you know, 
we don't, we try not to spend too much time dwelling on what we've lost and really thinking about what are the opportunities um, to save things. And you know, one of the questions I'll get asked a lot, especially, you know, maybe by a politician or um, sometimes by like a business reporter is, well, we don't have to save everything, do we? And I always answer, no, we just have to save everything that's left <laughs> because we have lost so much. And I, you know, definitely feel like, you know, hopefully the tide has changed on that and people are saying we can't lose any more. Um, so yeah. I mean, it breaks my heart to th see things knocked down and torn away. So I do, I like that answer that we need everything that's left we need to save. Well, especially, so there's the architectural side of things and the community side that you alluded to, like this is, you know, having these, you know, beautiful spaces with connection, you know, with history and with that sort of authenticity um, is one thing. But when you think about, you know, I have four kids and you think about like the planet we're leaving behind, you know, for them, um, yeah, preservation is really the ultimate form of reduced, reuse, recycle, right? Mm -hmm. So we really can't afford as a planet to be losing any more buildings. About 60% of the materials in municipal landfills right now is from the building and demolition um, trades. Um, uh, worldwide, about 50% of resource extraction um, goes towards building new buildings. In the United States this year, we will tear down and then replace a billion square feet of building. So it's not that we didn't need a billion square feet or it's not that we need another billion. It just wasn't fashionable or someone decided it was cheaper to tear down and then build something new. And as a planet, we can't afford those decisions anymore. So even if you're not super into architecture, um, you know, there are, there are really nuts and bolts reasons why as sort of a planetary community, we really need to be looking at, um, at, at our resource use and our consumption, and the building industry is a huge part of that. It's just it, that those numbers just blow my mind because, you know, we're told, stop eating meat, use a, like, paper straw, but it's, like, yeah, you know, I'm not in a position to make these decisions about, like, housing and people knocking down things, and those are, like, the big things that would make a difference. And you are in that position. <laughs> okay, tell really, me how. <laughs> really, um, the, the sort of nice thing is that um, all most of, in the U.S., most of these, those kinds of decisions are actually made locally. So supporting your local preservation organization and supporting strong preservation ordinances um, really can have an impact um, in that way. And so in that sense, it is one of those ways that, that all of us can have an impact on that sort of global resource extraction by thinking really locally and acting really locally and making sure that we're saving what we have, that we're reusing it, that we're not falling into this trap of, you know, what's the sort of fashionable or trendy building of today. But when we have all of these great things around us, let's let's use them and let's invest in that. And um, we actually can as a, as a local community have a lot of control over that. Well, thank you for that, because I've been reading a lot of articles that make me feel very doomed, so that's, that makes me feel good that there is something I can do. So let's talk a little bit about how you personally got involved in this work. So let's hear a little bit about your journey to where you are now. Um, well, it comes back to the sort of, I'm a native sort of, um, so I actually wasn't born here. My parents are from here and have really deep roots in the Buffalo community, but when they got married, you know, it was the it was 60s, it was the early 70s, and um, 
they moved out to the West Coast. So I was actually born in Seattle. Oh, okay. um, and so didn't come back until, um, came back for visiting, you know, grandparents and things, but didn't come back um, to really live here until I was 10. Um, and that's when I started going to school here. Um, so that was when it expanded from just visits, you know, to actually living here. And, um, you know, I always say to people, I got my urban planning degree when I was in my 20s, but I became an urban planner when I was 10 years old and we moved into our blue house on Norwood Avenue. Because oh for gosh. me, that was like this really, this moment of that place that we lived in was so empowering to me as a child. I could walk to the library anytime I wanted. Nobody needed to drive me there. I could just say, hey, I'm going out. If you sat on your front steps long enough, somebody would come around to play. You know, you didn't need your mom to call and, you know, set up a play date because the whole community was a play date. Um, we knew so many of the small business owners on Elmwood Avenue lived right in the neighborhood. So you always had this sense of, um, well, the sense of being watched, you know, so you can get away with that much, um, but also just a sense of sort of safety and of belonging in the neighborhood. So I think that really started my my journey of really thinking about place and the importance of place in people's lives, even though I couldn't, of course, have articulated that as a 10-year-old. I just knew I really liked, liked it here. Going to the and library. it did good things for me. And then my childhood was all people moving away. Like the 80s and 90s really were kind of the nadir of um, population loss in Buffalo. So, so there was this sort of competing narrative in my head, like I love Buffalo and I love the things it's given me as a kid living here, but so many people aren't able to stay or don't feel like they should stay. And so sometimes it was friends just moving to the suburbs because, you know, the city is unlivable and unsafe. And a lot of times it was people moving to, you know, North Carolina for a job because there just weren't the jobs here. Um, they would have loved to stay closer to their mm -hmm. family, but didn't feel like that was an, an option for them. So, you know, I think that got me thinking more deeply about just cities and the role of cities and the role of community. Um, and then I ended up going to graduate school um, at the University of Washington in Seattle. And at the time when I was in graduate school, there was this uh, big movement, the new urbanism. And so, and, and most of the people I was going to graduate school with were from the West Coast, they're, or they're from Arizona, or some of these like really rapidly growing um, places and so like how do we create these communities that are walkable and that are empowering for people and that you know don't have to rely on cars and you know as I learn more about the new urbanism I realize like I'm an old urbanist because we already have those exact same mm -hmm. checklists of how you build a successful community like we have that here in Buffalo it just wasn't being utilized um, and it and it wasn't necessarily being appreciated locally by you know some of our decision makers and I think that really solidified you know I knew I would always move back to Buffalo someday, my heart is here. But that was really when I realized that that was, it wasn't just somewhere I wanted to live because I love the people, but it was somewhere that I felt like my calling really was embedded. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's quite a journey. I'm glad <laughs> to have you back here. I, that's funny that you, you know, started out in Seattle and then ended up in Washington yeah. before coming back here. <laughs> they always come back. That's right. <laughs> I say that as my brother and my cousin recently left. I'm like, they'll, they'll be back. They'll be back. <laughs> my sister lives in Philadelphia, and I'm always trying to get her back. But her husband, is he's as Philadelphia as I am Buffalo, so oh, that's I'm not a tough 100% sell. sure. <laughs> I've had people say, you know, people that either have moved here from other places or people that I know that live in other cities, they're like, this Buffalo Pride thing is really interesting. <laughs> it runs deep. <laughs> yeah. And I can't believe that they're like across the country there are so many like Bill's backer bars 
in places that you would never expect. Like, when I lived in Seattle, we got yeah. a couch for our apartment because we were at, you know, whatever the Bills bar was there, and someone overheard us, and he was a Buffalo guy, and he heard us talking about how we couldn't afford a couch. He was like, I was just about to get rid of a couch, and that's how we got our couch. <laughs> you know, we're everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And always ready to help. Exactly. <laughs> City of good neighbors. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, my podcast isn't necessarily a Buffalo-centric podcast, but it just happens to be that way because there are so many people around here that, you know, are so worth talking to. So I love it. Um, so I also heard that you, one of your big projects in Buffalo, um, that you were very instrumental in was getting Asbury Hall up and running again. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I was the project manager for that and the owners, um, uh, and developers at the time were Ani DeFranco and Scott Fisher. Scott Fisher is my husband. Oh, okay. <laughs> full disclosure. Um, so we actually, um, that's how we got to know each other was um, uh, uh, he was interested in that building and I had the blueprints for the building. Okay. <laughs> and the rest is history, as they say. Um, so it started out, I was just helping them, um, uh, you know, they ran... A record company and we're a musician and so they didn't really know that much about you know how do you actually develop a building um and I was working for a local architecture firm at the time and so um I was just helping out a little bit here and there and then it eventually got to the point where I had to take leave of absence from my job and actually like get it done so I was the project manager for that for about two years um it was uh it was a really complicated project um it was and it was going to be demolished when they um, started looking at it because um, stones had fallen off or had fallen off one of the very tall steeples, gouged a big hole in the roof, and then fallen onto Tupper Street. And so you can imagine Tupper Street was actually closed off with Jersey barriers for several months. And you oh, can wow. imagine what that That's was doing to downtown traffic. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so uh, the city did, and so the city was going to tear the building down. And um, thanks to um, to Scott and his involvement in the Preservation Coalition, um, as well as a local attorney uh, named Bob Cressy, they actually were able to um, uh, get insurance funds um, that had been with the building and make emergency repairs to the steeple. So that sort of took care of that interim emergency piece and allowed the traffic to be opened back up on Tupper Street. Um, but then the building kind of languished for another couple of years because people weren't sure what to do with it. And churches traditionally are one of the hardest buildings to reuse. Um, so when they started looking at it, one of our big challenges was how do we fund this? So they actually put in about... Um, $3 million of their own um, cash up front, and we had to figure out like where does the rest of that capital stack come from. And the city, when we first started the project, had committed $1.2 million to the project, and then 9-11 happened. And New York State basically stopped funding things in Buffalo. So that funding that the city thought they had didn't exist anymore. So um, we had to really cobble together funding from a number of different sources. Um, we were the first project in New York State and only the third in the country to combine the historic tax credits with the new market tax credits. Um, so we really, we went through the ringer on that, but we learned a lot and we saved this beautiful building. And I think it is one of the things that, um, you know, when I talk to a developer or I talk to someone who's trying to save a building, like I've been there, I've been the person trying to figure out how do I make these different programs work together? How do I find this funding? So I think it definitely, it gives me 
I'm not just an advocate of like, you shouldn't tear this building down, but I'm also like, a, let's work together and we'll figure it out. It will be hard. <laughs> um, there's not a ton of funding for preservation, but we, we will figure it out. And I think the fact that I have figured it out does give comfort to, you know, to mm -hmm. other owners as we're working together. I feel like that project makes you a little bit of a celebrity around here. <laughs> we love that project. It's definitely, um, it was a labor of love. And, um, you know, nobody's made any money off of it. You know, it wasn't a profitable project, but we would, I always laugh, like my kids don't have a college fund, but they have that building. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was, it was definitely worth it. And when you see it coming alive and when you see, you know, an event happening there, um, and we do work really hard to make it available to the community, you know, as much as possible. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it's, an amazing transformational story and um, Buffalo actually has a lot of um, church adaptive reuse um, projects and I think we show a way forward for even um, the country like definitely people look to Buffalo like how you I mean, we have a lot of churches that are endangered then right now I stay up you know at night worrying about but we have been able to to save a whole bunch and that's not necessarily the case in other cities so we're really proud of the role that we've played in that and um, Actually, I think that project is one of the ones that um, really brought the developer community's attention to the role that historic tax credits can play. Um, and before that, they kind of thought it was this kind of weird anomaly project. And one of the things we did with that project was we didn't just do the project, but we were willing to talk about it. We would go and talk to anyone about how we did it, what the capital stack was, how we made it work. And I think that really educated a lot of developers um, as to how they could make it work in their projects. And I think, you know, when you, you can draw actually kind of a direct line between the Asbury Church project and, um, and the Hotel Lafayette, um, that Rocco Termini did a few years later, which to your listeners might be interesting as it was the, uh, bill, it was a building designed by the first professional art, uh, female architect in the United States. It's actually the Hotel I didn't know Lafayette. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little piece of trivia, but, um, uh, I don't know that that project would have come about if, um, Rocco Termini hadn't been really interested in what we did with our project and how that worked from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. There are tons of churches here. What is the most creative, and not necessarily with the church, but the most creative repurposing that you've seen with a building? Fashion, like with a building anywhere? Anywhere, yeah. Oh, well, I actually did my graduate thesis on grain elevators. I love the grain elevators. Um, so I have a super soft spot for everything that's happening at Silo mm -hmm. City. And there's actually um, an amazing um, grain elevator project in South Africa that's um, an art gallery. And what they've done with the spaces and how they've used it, I think, is probably one of my very, um, very favorite projects. Um, with Silo City, of course, being right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last weekend I was walking at Tiff um, Nature Preserve, and it's just the the juxtaposition of like the buildings with the nature. It's just very odd. It's just a very like buff. I guess just a buffalo thing that we have here. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> juxtaposition of, like, industry and nature and industry and housing, you know, when mm -hmm. you're in the first ward and you just get that sense of, like, um, how close people were living to this very, very mm -hmm. heavy industry, and in some cases still are, but uh, but a little bit less um, 
you know, you don't see that. You definitely don't see that in West Coast cities, and you don't mm -hmm. see that in a lot of other um, a lot of other places. And it is it's a very Buffalo thing. And so now some of those industrial buildings are being repurposed, um, you know, either for residential or more art mm -hmm. spaces. And um, and so the fact that these buildings are still in these communities is very cool. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I was perusing your social media, and I noticed that you do have you know some opportunities out there. Uh, the one that stuck out to me particularly, and I, I'm going to say the name wrong, but it was like the lesbian bar crawl. I don't think it was called the bar crawl, but um, like the historic, you know, going through the neighborhoods and seeing like the historic lesbian bars. Do you have lots of opportunities like that of different, very categorical things where you're seeing this one particular item? Yeah, so we do, part of our mission is definitely educational. So um, it's not just that we're, you know, advocating for particular buildings, um, but we really you know, we really try to educate people as much as possible about the history of our city and the history of our community. That particular project, the other thing we try to do is support other organizations that are trying to do the same thing. So um, that particular tour is actually put on by the LGBTQ History uh, Project, and PBN is a sponsor and a supporter of that because, you know, one of the things I think, and I guess we can talk about this when we talk about, you know, the womanhood questions, <laughs> but, um, you know, Buffalo has been traditionally kind of a segregated city in a, in a number of different ways and so one of the consequences of that is consequences of that is that there's organization and like frontline arts organizations and community organizations um, that really serve particular niche audiences and while we really want PBN to be more diverse and to tell more diverse stories ourselves we also want to be mindful that there are marginalized groups who are telling their own stories really well and we don't need to take that over from them we can simply support and lift up and use our platform to help lift them up so just want to make sure that lgbtq history project gets the credit for that event um, and that in that instance and in some of our work like in the michigan street corridor and some other things that we do we we really see our role as amplifying those um, voices that are already existing within the community. Um, coming back to events that we've, you know, that we do ourselves, um, we have a great um, uh, Terracotta City walking tour coming up, I think, on the 26th, and that's a really specific. So, Terracotta is this great material you might know most familiarly as um, the cladding on the Guarantee Building, um, which is Louis Sullivan's masterpiece. Um, but it's actually used all throughout the city of Buffalo in a number of really interesting ways, and it's one of those materials that I actually think defines a lot of the picture that, that people have of Buffalo in their heads, but they don't even know it, because they don't know what terracotta is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a great tour, and our Director of Preservation Services actually gives it herself, and she's very educated on this, and she's very fun, and it's a really great tour. Um, another kind of niche thing that we do is um, our EB Green bike tour, which, um, you know, everybody's out there on their bicycles, and um, EB Green was an architect who was uh, really active in Buffalo for a long time, and again, I think people don't even realize they know his work. When you go on this tour, you'll be like, oh, uh, you know, so a lot of the residential houses, like up and down, you know, Norwood and on Chapin Parkway and going um, through no North Buffalo, the art gallery, like these are all E.B. Green um, buildings and um, go on a bike tour and learn a little bit about him and see the buildings. And so we do really like to 
to show off our city and make sure that, you know, people understand who built it and why and all those different stories. So those are a couple of our opportunities. And then we do a downtown walking tour every Friday and Saturday, um, which is really inexpensive. It's actually free for members. So if you're a member of PBN, you can just come on down. And it's a great way to get oriented to the downtown architecture. Um, and then um, uh, uh, the Guarantee Building itself, um, we're the exclusive tour provider there so we do oh, cool. do tours of that on Fridays and Saturdays as well um, so you know those are kind of our our main sort of tour events but it's a really easy way and it's a really fun way to like learn about Buffalo and get engaged and get involved mm -hmm. and all the proceeds from those tours actually go to support the organization so if you're going on a PBN tour you know we're taking that ten dollars and we're putting it towards saving Willard Park or expanding advocacy um, work that we might be helping with LGBTQ history project, for instance. Excellent. So why don't you tell my listeners right now, if they're looking to get in touch with you, where can they do that? Well, they can follow us on social media, and our Instagram is at PVN Saves, and you can find us on Facebook at Preservation Buffalo Niagara, and uh, we have a website, which is also preservationbuffaloniagara.org. Um, and those are probably the best ways to find us and find out what's going on. And um, there's a calendar of events, and um, you can sign up. We have a weekly um, e-newsletter that goes out every Wednesday, and we give you an update on what's happening both in the preservation world as well as whatever events and tours and things are coming up. So sign up for that, and you'll know all about us. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to ask you that again at the end of the episode. <laughs> I think that will transition into the questions about womanhood. And that being said, right from the top, I'm going to say, you, your organization is all women, correct? <laughs> it is. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> we're not discriminating against anyone. Um, it just happens to uh, have worked out that way at the moment. Um, but it is, um, yeah, it is. <laughs> How is that? Tell me a little bit more about it. Um, well, it's, those are the most qualified people for the jobs that we had available. So um, we're a small office, so there's four and a half of us. Um, and, um, yeah, it's interesting because our office is all women, and it's 2019, and I still go to multiple meetings every week where I'm the only woman in the meeting. Um, so it's nice to come back to the office and have that not be oh, yeah. the case. Um, I actually think it's interesting in Buffalo how much amazing female leadership there is in the nonprofit sector. Um, you know, when you look at Eva Hassett over at the International Institute and Jill Jedlica over at Buffalo Niagara Waterkeeper and, you know, there's just, um, there's, I don't know what it is about Buffalo, but there's some really amazing women, um, you know, in key leadership roles in the nonprofit sector and I do think that probably helps um, in terms of like who is being hired and who's being considered for different roles. Well that's awesome so I just wanted to point that out before we got into the questions. Um, so these are they're a little bit more personal questions at this point. Um, my first question that I usually ask is what's your story but I feel like we've covered that so, so we'll move to the next one. Um, so Jesse, what does it mean to be a woman in 2019 in general and to you specifically? Yeah, I think that question is so interesting. I was, I was really raised by feminists, you know, who use that word and were, you know, very proud of it and were very transparent in 
kind of the battles that they had fought and what they, you know, wanted for me. Um, you know, my mother actually graduated from the first class at the Seattle Midwifery School and was practicing midwife, and I really spent a lot of my early childhood um, in the Fremont Women's Clinic, which is in Seattle, um, and so was, you know, definitely felt very immersed in this idea of female health and female empowerment, and um, and am lucky enough, my stepmother is equally amazing, and um, I have some aunts and and first cousins who, you know, one of my uh, first cousins did, you know, union organizing for dock workers in New Orleans in the 1970s, oh which is, you know, she's pretty badass and then worked as a welder in the shipyards in Seattle. And so, you know, I, I was raised in this um, sort of very feminist environment and it was really important to me. I think in 2019, where I am at is, maybe an expanded definition of womanhood and trying to be more um, more thoughtful and more inclusive um, of sort of who counts themselves as a woman and, and how, um, you know, how we can expand both the definition of womanhood and also be more welcoming to folks who want, you know, who are a part of that tent or should be a part of that tent. And I don't necessarily feel like that, you know, with, with my upbringing, it was women really reclaiming or, or claiming this sense of womanhood. I think it's time to open that that up a little bit, and I think that's where I am in 2019. Mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of people are headed in that direction, and even on the show, you know, the criteria for being a guest on the show is, do you consider yourself to be a woman? Yes? Okay. There we are. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Um, that. And just a little more of, you know, allowing self-determination and self-definition I think is important. All right, so I've flip-flopped these two questions. Usually I I ask what your favorite parts are first, but we'll do that second. So what are the hardest parts of being a woman versus your favorite part? I like to end on a positive note. (laughs) Um, You know, I think the hardest parts are still what they ever were. (laughs) Um, You know, Feeling like your gifts are being equally valued as you know as 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 men in the community, and um, it it feels strange to even say that in 2019, but it is definitely still true. Um, and you know, I think um, for me, you know, I also want to be mindful of not falling into somebody else's box. So I, you know, I like this podcast. I like the idea of this because. Um, why I want to be taken seriously as a person and as a professional. I am a woman. I do bring that with me every day for good or bad. Um, you know, that's, that's who I am. And I'm seen that way. You know, we just had a nice conversation about the amazing nonprofit leadership, um, uh, being a really skewed female in this community. But, um, let's face it, there's a lot of gatekeepers in other industries that are not so much. Um, and I think that that is reflected in sometimes some of the policies, um, and especially around the built environment that you see, you know, when it can impact safety, it can impact, um, how families, uh, are able to access and use the city. So I think the frustrating thing for me is still that, that sense of, um, still today in 2019 being taken slightly less seriously um, 
you know, then people who happen to be male who don't necessarily have my breadth of experience and you can still, you can still see it everywhere. Um, and I think that for me is the most frustrating part. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Now, does that come up being in the all women environment of the office? Um, I mean, you said that sometimes you go to meetings and you're the only woman in the room. Yeah. So is that something that you contend with frequently? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to then have the office to come back to, uh, <laughs> yeah. people who, you know, have been yeah. there and understand, you know, uh, what we're saying. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting, and to always feel like you have to carry that water, of course, out in the community can be frustrating, too. Um, I was suggesting a, a, an update of something that was done in the 1940s and, um, and, and happened to make mention of it uh, on Facebook, and the ideas of who should update it came back and, you know, it was very male heavy and I was like, well, you know, there are women urban planners in the world. There are women architects. There are, you know, women policymakers in these fields that we could be, you know, there's, a, you know, amazing historians doing great work. Um, and so, um, you know, it's definitely something that we've all had to contend with outside of just the question of, you know, harassment or anything like that. Just that sense of, you know, having your career um, you know, maybe not uh, seen as as important as it should be um, by some folks. But I've been really lucky in my own personal career to have amazing mentorship and to have folks who have really believed in me. And I, you know, my philosophy is I just want to pay that forward and I just want to lift other people up. I try to be that kind of boss who, I always say my, my um, uh, Peter Flynn at Flynn Patelli Architects, who really brought me back to Buffalo and, and gave me my start. I always used to say, like, you can always give me just enough rope to not hang myself. And I, I try to be that same kind of, you know, boss. I've hired you because I trust you and do the work and, you know, I, you know, I'll help, but it's your work and, you know, you need to take ownership of it. And, um, and I was lucky enough to have some really amazing people in my, my early career. So I'm always looking for opportunities to pay that forward. I love that. That's a great philosophy. So then what is your favorite parts of being, what are your favorite parts of being a woman? You know, I don't know if it'll sound, uh, you know, I wouldn't want it to sound exclusive. And I certainly don't think everybody has to make this choice. But my personal favorite part of being a woman is motherhood. Um, and just the fact that, um, you know, that I been able to do that and I you know it's not a choice for everyone I certainly don't judge people who that is not their favorite part mm -hmm. of being a woman it does not you know need to be but for me it really it really is it's such a privilege um uh for me to have uh these people who um you know look to you to help them define themselves in the world and I really I do appreciate that and um you know the fact that I was able to grow these magical creatures is like, it's sort of, you know, a crazy thing. Um, and I'm just grateful that I've had the opportunity to do that. Oh, that's awesome. How many kids do you have? Four. Four. <laughs> I really liked it. I just kept doing it. <laughs> What's the age range? Uh, 13, 11, 7, and just about to be six. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot. Um, uh, but my husband really enjoys fatherhood, which makes this all possible. Oh, good, good. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so what do you think the world needs to know about women that maybe it doesn't know right now? 
you know, I'll bring it back to our work. I think the amazing contributions that women have made, and maybe they aren't that sort of architect, big name architect contribution, but women have been building and preserving cities um, from time immemorial and just, um, you know, bringing it back to Buffalo, you know, not only did we have the first female architect in the United States, but a whole series of women who um, have done a lot to shape not just our city, but other cities. Um, one of the women that we don't think people know enough about is Mary Talbert, um, who oh, I love is, her. Yes, I have, you have to love her. I have the book City of Light on the um, oh yeah on the shelf over there. there. You She's go. a feature in there. <laughs> um, I would also recommend Strangers in the Promised Land um, mm -hmm. as another great book about early um, Buffalo African American um, history. Um, but um, Mary Talbert herself. I like to claim her as a very early preservationist, and she, a lot of people don't know this, but um, Frederick Douglass's house in Washington, D.C. and Anacostia was going to be torn down, and Mary Talbert was instrumental in saving that house, which is now a great tourist attraction and um, really helpful to understanding um, the legacy that Frederick Douglass left behind in Buffalo. So she was a preservationist. She shaped our city in a whole bunch of really different, really important ways, as did Louise Bethune. Um, and uh, another woman I put in that category is Mariah Love, who um, pioneered um, the American use of the crash, which is early daycare, um, which really, again, allowed women to work and support their families. Um, we don't necessarily think of women as doing that, but they have always done that. And the idea of the crash was really instrumental in that. And so, you know, what I think, you know, one of the things we're trying to do at PBN is really expand that story so that people do know about these contributions of women. And if you um, scratch the surface anywhere in the city of Buffalo, you're going to find um, uh, an important woman in that story and a few stories that you think we should be telling that we're not like we'd love to hear from people um, but you know I think the contributions that women have made to cities are are just generally unrecognized and need to get more attention and that is I've read a lot about you know single women particularly kind of flocking to cities and so women have always been had a crucial place in the cities as people who are living and working and growing there absolutely. more than in rural areas so yeah absolutely there are so many great examples and ways that women have shaped our city have shaped other cities and you know we want to tell those stories mm -hmm. where I love was one of my stories of subversion on like a very early episode oh, I don't remember cool. which one but she go back and listen okay that's back there all right cool. <laughs> um so let's see let's I was going to ask you who the women are that you most admire um would that be different answers from what you just gave? I mean, definitely, obviously, I think everyone admires the women in their own lives. So, you know, and I was lucky to be raised around really um, amazing oh, women. Um, and and all the women I just named, you know, I have admiration for. And then I always kind of like Emma Goldman, you know, I think, mm -hmm. you know, labor activists and like, don't get angry, organize. And I always think like, you know, I think about her sometimes. She's like, a put her in that category. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think, again, you know, women have always done so many things that have shaped the world and, you know, they just need to get a little more credit for mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. That's what that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Trying to get women the credit they deserve. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> so we'll end on this question. What changes would you like to see for women in the future? You know, 
as a mother of a daughter, you know, I, you know, hope that, um, I hope that her world feels less constricted. Um, not that, you know, the people I loved have never made me feel that way, but it is hard, um, especially, I think, messaging in the 80s and 90s about what you were supposed to look like or who you were supposed to be was very rigid in a lot of ways, and I do see that as changing. Um, but, you know, I really think um, just, you know, letting ourselves out of these boxes, whether other people are trying to put them in or whether we're trying to put ourselves in them and just giving ourselves permission to not be in those boxes, I think is so important. Um, and I really hope that, you know, as my kids get older, um, you know, that will continue. I think as the mother of sons as well, um, you know, how we raise our boys um, and how we can inject feminism into their lives every day, I think will um, help continue that conversation. Um, and so I think part of what has to change is this idea that, um, that feminism is all about women and it's really, you know, it's really about all of us and what Definitely. kind of world we want to live in. So I think, you know, expanding all those definitions is probably what I'd like to see change. Awesome. I think that's a great place to stop. All right. Um, so now I'm going to make you say it again. Tell us. Uh, okay. Tell my listeners where they can find you. On Instagram at, <laughs> at PBN Saves. On Facebook at Preservation Buffalo Niagara. And on the World Wide Web at PreservationBuffaloNiagara.org. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for being here. This has been wonderful. Thank you. It was so nice to meet you. I nice appreciate it. Me too. It. You answered all my Buffalo questions. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, listeners, if you're looking to get in touch with Womankind, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Womankind Podcast, on my website at www.womankindpodcast.com, or via email at womankindpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye, friends. <laughs>